You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, here I am again being forced to re-record one of these messages uh, and to do it the day after the Sunday service. I truly hate doing these things. I, I hate them. I'd rather just uh, allow the recording from Sunday morning to be as it was, but our recorder seems to be cutting out on us for whatever reason, so we are going to get, be getting that replaced and be getting that issue solved soon, hopefully, by this Sunday. But uh, for whatever reason, some of them just don't get recorded, uh, and I know that the, the guys back there are hitting the record button but the, the recordings are not, are not, uh, well lasting for whatever reason. So here we are. I'm going to be walking you through today Ecclesiastes 3 verses 16 to 22. It has been two months since we were studying a text from the book of Ecclesiastes. So a little bit of a refresher is somewhat in order. If you remember Ecclesiastes being a depressing book, you're probably remembering one of the main themes of the book. All is vanity. That is Solomon's repeated refrain throughout the book. Uh, that describes life and activities as Solomon observed them under the sun. And he examined life as it is lived and experienced apart from God's perspective and apart from divine revelation. And the perspective that Solomon came up with, the conclusion that he came up with, was that all is vanity. So here's a little bit of a review of where we have come so far in our study of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, Solomon looked at the endless cycles of nature, and he bemoaned the fact that in spite of all the activity and the toil and the labor in nature, that nothing is changed and nothing is new and nothing is remembered. And then he turned to wisdom. And examining wisdom, Solomon bemoaned the fact that that uh, wisdom really had no no lasting benefit or profit and no lasting advantage beyond this life. And wisdom that it is used with apart from giving glory to the God who gives the gift of wisdom, that wisdom only brings pain and vexation. And then in chapter 2, Solomon turned to test pleasure. He did not withhold from himself anything that his heart desired. Any pleasure that he wanted, he had the means to provide, and he provided it. But then he found at the end of that pursuit of pleasure, that pleasure, when it is pursued apart from the God who gives that gift to enjoy, and apart from giving him honor and glory and accomplishing his purposes in it, that pleasure only brings emptiness and meaninglessness. And so he came to the conclusion that that too is vanity. And then Solomon turned again to wisdom in chapter 2. But though he acknowledged that wisdom has a benefit when life is lived with wisdom, because just as it's better to walk in light than it is to walk in darkness, so it is better to walk in wisdom than it is to walk in folly, Solomon acknowledged that at the end, both the wise man and the fool, they alike die. And so what advantage then does the wise man have over the fool? Then Solomon turned to the subject of labor, our work, our activity, our labor that we do under the sun. And he reflected upon the fact that when we, we, we labor and we accumulate all of these things, all of these riches and, and uh, the fruit of our labor, but then we don't enjoy them and then suddenly we die and pass them on to somebody. And who knows whether the person that we pass them on to may be a wise man or a fool. You don't know. He may be somebody that receives all the fruit of your labor and he has not worked for it. He does not deserve it. And so this too is vanity. And then in chapter 3, Solomon 
uh, talked about all of the, the various seasons of life that we go through, all of the events of life, the things that happen in our lives, like the being born, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and time to reap, a time to go to war, a time for peace and love and hate, and all of the giving up is lost and finding, all of those seasons of life, those things that characterize our existence. And Solomon examined all of those in that poem that is the beginning of chapter 3, and then he he comes to the conclusion that God has appointed all of these things for us in order for us to respond, in order so that we might respond with faith and joy and fear. So that takes us to the end of chapter 3, verse 15, which is where we were at the last time we were in Ecclesiastes. And today we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22. And before I give you something of an outline for these verses, I'll give you a couple of observations from the passage itself. First, I want you to notice that this verse, these verses are tied to the verses that have come before it. Uh, verse 16 begins with the, the word furthermore, which is kind of Solomon's way of, it would be as if Solomon were to say, not only that, but this also. And he is, it is a conjunction that connects what he is about to say with what has come before. And there's another connection with the previous verses as well. You notice at the end of verse 17, Solomon says, for a time and for every matter and for every deed is there. And that sounds familiar because we read at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, that there is appointed a time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. So the theme is kind of similar. Solomon is making some similar observations. A second thing to note about the passage in general is that Solomon uses repeatedly the language of first-person observation. You see that he, you see that he says in verse 16, I have seen under the sun. In verse 22, I have seen that nothing is better. And this continues. We saw this in chapter 2 on a couple of occasions. It continues into chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, Solomon says, then I looked again. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, I have seen. Chapter 4, verse 7, then I looked again. So you can see there that Solomon is, you can see there that Solomon is offering a series of observations as he looks at life as it has lived under the sun. And, and, and what we have seen is that the same thing that Solomon saw, that there is nothing new under the sun. His observations are 3,000 years old, but they read like yesterday's headlines. They read as if Solomon wrote these words over breakfast this morning. And so you and I see the same things that Solomon saw, and, and we can recognize that, yes, indeed, the man has nailed it. I mean, he really has got a perspective on life. So he's looking at all these different elements of life lived under the sun, and he is giving to us those observations and commenting on them. And this is kind of the, the pattern that follows all the way into chapter 4. Now, let me chart for you a little bit about where we're going in these verses, and this can serve as something of an outline for you. In verse 16, Solomon offers a complaint, and it's a complaint regarding the issue of injustice in the place of justice. In verse 17, he gives an answer for that complaint, but it is an answer that comes from somebody who is viewing this issue through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of God's revelation. And the answer is that God will judge this unrighteousness. Then in verses 18 to 21, Solomon shows it gives us a different answer to that same lament that he raises in verse 16, but in verses 18 to 21, the answer that he gives is not through the eyes of faith. It is it is through the eyes of one who views life from only under the sun. It is the vantage point, or it is a conclusion that one would reach from the vantage point of one who is looking at life apart from divine revelation. And then in verse 22, he offers a conclusion. So there is the lament, this this thing that he observed that vexed him, and then he offers the answer to it from the perspective of a man looking at it from faith. And then he offers a perspective on this from the man who looks at it from just sight. 
from just life under the sun, and then a conclusion to the whole matter in verse 22. So let's look first of all at this observation that he gives concerning injustice in verse 16. Verse 16 reads, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And and, and here in the place of justice, what, what is the place of justice and the place of righteousness? Notice that the verse is a, is a parallel structure. There's parallelism here because both of these, the place of justice and the place of righteousness, are describing the same place. What is the place of justice? Where is it that we turn for justice? In, not only in our own day, but it would have been the same uh, in Solomon's day. Where do we turn to see justice done? Solomon is describing here the corruption and perversion of justice in the courts, in the place of justice, in the place where justice should be done. He's describing a, a corruption and perversion at the highest level. Um, you could say, if, if, you're, if you're thinking that this sounds familiar, you say, well, this sounds just like, just like the day in which we live. Well, you're absolutely right. It does sound just like the day in which we live. In fact, it sounds like every day in which everyone has ever lived throughout the course of human history. It's not just unique to our own nation and our own culture, though Though it exists, this corruption and wickedness in the places of justice, it exists in our own culture, but it exists in every culture. In fact, it exists wherever fallen and fallible and, and uh, perverse men rule over other men. The fact that wickedness should exist is uh, here is doubly frustrating because this is the one place where you would want, where you would expect that righteousness and justice would prevail. The places of justice in our lands are places of where issues of life and death are decided. People's fortunes and their futures and their livelihood, their reputation, their possessions, they are all handled in courts in our land each and every day. And this is where we would want righteousness to prevail. Instead, we find bigotry, partiality, <clears throat> bribery, favoritism, corruption, abuses and misuses of power. This should shock us. This should frustrate us. And it does Solomon. Notice that it is not the fact that wickedness is found that he laments, but where it is found. It's in the place of justice. It's in the place of wickedness. We might expect these things in a brothel, or a bar, or a barracks, but in a court of law? And indeed, this was nothing new or unique to Solomon's time. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, you find that the prophets frequently pointed to the injustices of wicked rulers and, and judges. The place of wickedness was, uh, the place of justice was also always corrupted by wicked people when the culture turned wicked. And, uh, this is true that whenever, whenever the people of God, whenever a people of a nation turn away from God and begin to exalt wickedness in the land, you're going to get that in the courts of justice. You cannot have a land who, a uh, filled full of people who are righteous and pious and following God's statutes and principles and honoring Him and yet at the same time have corrupt people in positions of power. And in the court, the courts will always reflect the culture and the culture. If the culture is corrupt and the nation is filled with people who are unjust and wicked and deny truth, you're going to get courts that are filled and ruled over and, and overseen by the same type of people. And this was Israel's perennial problem. You constantly see the, the Old Testament prophets as they, as they were called by God to correct the people and to reprove the people that one of the things that they constantly reproved was the people's perversion of justice in the places of justice. Micah 7 verse 3 says, Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. And so they weave it together. And there you have a, 
a picture of condemnation upon the princes and the judges who do what they do and, and, and work together with using both hands to work wickedness all for a bribe. Zephaniah 3 verse 3, her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Psalm 82 laments this injustice in the land. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. So has anything changed? No. Today, look, we're bombarded almost every day with examples of corruption and injustice and partiality out of our own places of justice in our own land. The law is ignored. Is it right, does it seem right to you that a Christian baker who does not want to participate in a ceremony that they find morally objectionable should be fined into oblivion and have their property taken away from them? They're not even afforded the protections of justice and law, while those who are their persecutors are given special privileges and special rights, all because they are part of today's protected class? Does that seem right? Friends, that's nothing short of wicked. And a society like that cannot long endure. You cannot have a civil society that behaves this way. We, we all know of stories of murderers and rapists and child abusers that walk free because of some legal technicality, because of some loophole, because of some corrupt, wicked judge who rules not according to the law, but according to his or her feelings from that day. To give you another example, is there anybody listening to the sound of my voice who has any kind of confidence in our current justice system? Do you honestly believe that you would be treated in a court of law the same way that one of our elected officials would be treated in a court of law? Or do you ever get the sense that there's one law for them and another law for us? So we all, we all realize that there is no injustice in this world, and we see examples of it each and every day. Somebody can be can somebody can commit a felony after felony after felony and, and still run for president. Does this seem just? Does it seem like justice is done? Does it seem like all people are treated equally under the law? No, and that is Solomon's lament. Proverbs seventeen twenty three says a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. Proverbs twenty eight verse five evil men do not understand justice. And so we might ask, well, if there cannot be justice, if you cannot find justice in the place of justice, then is there any hope for justice at all? And the answer to that is yes, there is. And this is the answer that Solomon gives to us in verse 17. Yes, justice shall be done. Ultimate justice will prevail. There is a divine judgment by God that will ensure that the scales of justice will be righted. Look at verse 17. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time and for every matter and for every deed is there. Now that theme of judgment is one that Solomon returns to time and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, he ends the book of Ecclesiastes with the discussion of that theme when he, he calls us to live our lives in light of the fact that God will bring to judgment every work that we do. God's judgment and the reality of it is something that is taught throughout scripture. The Psalms are filled with filled with references to God's judgment upon the wicked, upon the wicked's posterity, upon the wicked nations. The, the prophets are filled with statements regarding God's judgment upon the nations and the coming judgment of God at the end of time. And this is not just the teaching of the Old Testament, as if the idea of God's wrath is some archaic, ancient notion that sort of gets set aside during the more enlightened New Testament era. Rather, in the New Testament, we find Jesus himself speaking of judgment, warning of of hell and the eternal torment, the, the being punished in, in flames of fire where the worm does not perish and, and there's weeping and gnashing of, te- of teeth. 
And Jesus is the one who spoke of Lazarus and uh, the beggar and, and the rich man, the rich man being in torment and Lazarus going to Abraham's side. It's Jesus who claimed to be the one to whom the judgment of all men had been committed by the Father in, in John chapter 5. In Acts chapter 17, Paul said that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is Jesus, and he has furnished proof to all men by raising that man, that judge, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And Peter, in Acts chapter 10, said that God has appointed Christ as the judge of the living and the dead. And remember Paul's last, very last epistle, written to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says that Jesus Christ is the judge. He calls Jesus the judge of the living and the dead. So there is a day appointed for this. And you look at the end of verse 17, that's what Solomon says, for a time and for every matter and for every deed is there. This divine, this divine judgment is appointed. And it is appointed just like living and dying, just like uh, sowing and reaping, just like losing and finding, just like uh, crying and laughing. The, just as these are appointed seasons, so also there is an appointed time of judgment. And then the book of Revelation describes that final judgment when all those whose names have not been found written in the book of life are cast into the lake that burns with fire. And that is the second death. And we know that this judgment of God is going to be certain. It, it is imminent. It's not immediate, meaning that, that not every crime is punished immediately, but judgment is always imminent, meaning that every rebel is only one heartbeat away from judgment at all times. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of God that will not be revealed. Every act, every word, every motive of men's hearts will be revealed and judged. Every last sin will receive a just punishment. For those who knew Jesus Christ and belong to him, every one of our sins, every last one of them has been punished upon him. So there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But for those who die in rebellion to him, every last sin will be punished upon them for all of eternity. They will receive a just punishment. Hell is not a place where the punishment exceeds the crime. It is a place where the punishment matches the crime. And God's justice will be perfect, and it will be pure, and he will miss nothing. You will see that the murderer who gets away with crime, the crime and walks the streets in our world, he will get away with nothing in the next. The rapist, the child molester, the thief, the the embezzler, the liar, the violent man, the wife beater, all of those who get away with those crimes in this world, they will not escape justice in the next. And so this is the confidence that we can have, that God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Justice will be done. Every wrong will be righted, the righteous will be vindicated, and the wicked will be recompensed in the next life. Every act of wickedness will be punished, either on the sun or on those who will not bow the knee to the sun. Now, you and I have a sense of justice. We recoil at the idea that guilty criminals should go free. You see a guilty man walk or a guilty woman run for president, we are incensed, and rightly so, because we have a sense of justice that is part of the image of God in us, and our conscience testifies to what is right and wrong. And so we are angry when we see injustice is done. When someone steals our stuff, we want justice. When someone lies about us, we want justice. When we're wronged, defrauded, or harmed in some way, we want justice. And we want justice to be satisfied. But we also ought to be joyful and satisfied when we see that justice is executed. It is appropriate that we should long to see justice done. It is appropriate that we should desire justice and desire the execution of God's wrath. This is not an unholy desire. Sometimes people talk as if desiring God's judgment to come or desiring God's judgment to the vindication of God's name is some sort of an unspiritual sentiment, that it's as if it's unspiritual or unloving to want to see the wicked judged. It's not. When you see Christians beheaded and children abused and churches burned, do you not long for justice to be done? When you, when you see the lies that pervade our culture and our world, do you not long to see the truth vindicated and the truth reign? 
Do you not long to see the vindication of God's righteousness in the execution of his justice on sin and the impenitent wicked? I certainly do. And that's not an unholy desire. In Revelation 6.10, we hear the martyrs who gather around the throne of God. They've been killed because of the word of God and the testimony of the Lamb. Now listen to what they cry out. Revelation 6, verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What is it that they want? They want the justice of God. They want the vindication of God upon their enemies and upon his enemies. And friends, these are the words of glorified and perfected saints around the throne of God. Do you think you're more spiritual than they are? Do you think they're more loving than they are? God desires justice. God loves justice. God desires to vindicate the truth and to exercise his wrath upon his enemies. That is something that God desires. Do you think that you are more loving than God? You can't be. See, if you love what God loves, or if you love God, you will love what God loves. And you will hate what God hates. What does God love? God loves justice, for one. He does. He loves justice. Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 28. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Why will the descendants of the wicked be cut off? Because God loves justice and he does not forsake his godly ones. Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. God loves justice. And we ought to love justice and desire to see that it is done. So the teaching of Scripture that there is to be a a judgment upon the wicked, that the righteous will be vindicated at the end of time, that can that, that that is something that we can only know because Scripture tells us that. It is not something that we know because we see this uh, worked out in our own life or, or, or just in life under the sun. In other words, we would know nothing about those truths if we only looked at life from under the sun. Now that brings us to verse 18, verses 18 to 21, which is the perspective from under the sun. Now there are some who think that in these verses that Solomon is is questioning the answer he gives in first in, in verse uh, 17. In fact, it's it's somewhat difficult to to kind of figure out the connection between 16 and 17 with the section that follows 18 to 22. Some people think that Solomon is just picking up an entirely new subject here and, and going off on another tangent and uh, that there's no connection between these two sections. And others think that there is a connection, but the, that the connection is this, that having stated the orthodox truth in verse 17, that God will judge the wicked, Solomon now, in verses 18 to 21, sort of slips back into his cynical questioning ways of unorthodoxy from his perspective under the sun. I don't think that that's what Solomon is doing. I think he is intentionally contrasting two different views on the injustice issue. The injustice issue in verse 16 is that there is, there's injustice in the place of, of justice and unjust wickedness in the place of righteousness. Then in verse 17, he gives us the answer to that from Revelation. Then in verses 18 to 21, he gives us the answer that we would arrive at if all we had was human reason alone. And if all we have is human reason alone and no revelation, then we are stuck with the answer in verse 18. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there's no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? That's depressing, isn't it? That, that is 
taken at its bare face value, those words are anything but orthodox. But that is the perspective and the only perspective we can come to if we're going to live life from purely under the sun perspective. So the verse 18, the end of it is translated a little bit differently in some of the older translations than it is in some of the newer translations. It's a bit, a bit awkward or difficult, but the gist of it seems to be this, that God works these issues of, of justice in the future and not immediate right now and allowing wickedness to exist. He does this in order for us to see, for everybody to see, to display that men are but beasts. And this is the vantage point that under the sun offers you, that we are just animals. How is it that we are like the animals? Well, verse 19, we die like the animals. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. Now, Solomon's not teaching here that all dogs go to heaven. He's not saying, he's not talking about the, the fate of the afterlife, heaven and hell and rewards, and saying that everybody goes to the same place, you know, goldfish, golden retrievers, and and uh, man and Hitler and the most pious saint that they that they all go to the same place when they die. He's describing here fate, not in terms of the eternal state, but in terms of death in this world, which is why he says in verse 19, as one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage of man over beasts. What do we share in common? That we die just like animals. We breathe the same oxygen, and then we die, and we breathe no more. Our deaths, your death, is no more glorious than the death of a common farm animal. We are shot and we die. We're stabbed and we die. We bleed out, we die. We fall down, we get sick, we get old, and we die. And then our corpses rot into the ground just like your average beast. And so what is the advantage that man has over beast? Do you, do you end up escaping just because you're a human being? Do you end up escaping death? No. Verse 20. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and returned to the dust. And what is that same place? Again, Solomon's not talking about the afterlife here. He's talking about we all return to the dust. This, this We are created out of dust, dust. God breathed into us the breath of life. And then we die and our bodies go right back to the elements from which they came. The same thing happens to the bodies of animals as well. And so what advantage does man have? We, we breathe like animals. We live like animals. We die like animals. We decay like animals. And this just doesn't seem right. I mean, especially in light of the fact that as human beings, we are created in the image of God and we are supposed to exercise dominion over this creation, over the work of God's hands, to rule over the animals. And yet, man in his desire to be like God became like the animals, that we die. And there's a certain irony here. Solomon's kind of paraphrasing the curse uh, on Adam and Eve after the fall that it found, it found in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taking for, taken for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. There's a hint of that language here in this passage in Ecclesiastes. All came from dust and all returned to dust. That's verse 20. And so there's a certain irony in the fact that man wanted to be like God. We wanted to be like God in the garden. And as a result of that, we are cursed with death. And so now we're like what? Now we're like the beasts. And we share more in common with beasts than we do with God. And this is the view of life and death and justice and injustice from under the sun. You, you cannot know anything about eternal justice if all you have to go on is what we see in the here and now. And verses 18 to 21 are, are getting this view on injustice from the perspective of one who leaves God completely out of the question. Ignore God's word, deny that he exists, evaluate everything just from what we see in this life. And what conclusion do we come to? Well, we come to the, the conclusion of verse 21. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast ascends downward? 
They don't know this. You, you take the most beautiful woman in the world and the ugliest cat in the world and they die side by side right next to each other. Is there anything that you see there that would tell you that the breath of one goes to God and the breath of the other does not? Can you see any difference? Can you see any advantage? You take the richest man in the world and a stray, a stray dog who lives in an alley with nothing and they both die. And what do you see? You see nothing, just observing the bare observation. You see nothing that would tell you that one has any advantage over the other. That's the perspective from life under the sun. There is no advantage. There is no difference. I have watched a lot of animals die. I've had a, a hand in the death of many of them. And I have also stood by the bedside of a godly saint who passes from this life into eternity, into glory, just from bare observation, just from what we see with our eyes. There's no difference. There's nothing about the death of both of those that would tell me that one has an advantage over the other. This idea of, of a coming justice is something that we only know because someone from above the sun has revealed it to us. And without his revelation on these issues, we would have to conclude that the fate of everybody is the same because that's all we would be able to tell just from life lived under the sun. Now, in an atheistic worldview, this is exactly what you get. You, you get this perspective in verses 18 to 21. An, an atheist can bemoan the lack of justice. An atheist can decry wrongs and great wrongs and moral wrongs and travesties. But ultimately, the atheist has no solace, no can take no comfort in a coming day when wrongs will be righted. Because in an atheistic worldview, the life of Hitler is no more morally significant than the life of a golden retriever. They, they can't say, in fact, an atheist cannot even talk about immorality or justice and injustice or right or wrong without positing that God exists. Because if there is no God, there is no right or wrong. Murder, rape, child abuse, genocide, these are not really wrong in any meaningful sense. Because the atheist, not in any meaningful sense for the atheist, because nothing can be wrong for the atheist. If there is no God, then there is no moral standard by which anything can be measured. These are just my preferences. These are just cultural conventions. I can say that, as if I were an atheist, I could say that I don't like genocide. I don't like child abuse. I don't like rape. I don't like uh, killing people. I don't like people stealing things. But these are only things that I don't like. I can't say that they are objective, objectively wrong in any meaningful sense at all. They're not wrong because they are wrong in themselves. They are wrong because we as a culture define them to be wrong at this point in time. But 50 years from now, we may say that, we may say that child abuse is okay, and then it's right. Well, you can't say that it's wrong if everybody agrees to it. And so an atheist cannot really decry any kind of evil or any kind of immorality or any kind of injustice without assuming that there is some standard by which these injustices can be known. And so atheists, but an atheist has to live in God's world, doesn't he? I mean, he may, he may say that all truth is relative and all morality is relative. He'll say that until you cut in front of him in line at the DMV or at the supermarket. And then suddenly the atheist lives in a universe that is, that is cluttered with objective morality and clearly defined rights and wrongs and justices and injustices. The atheist cannot live consistently in his own worldview. So without God, we're all just beasts. If there is no God, then we're just naked apes. We're all just animals. We're just animals with no sense of, of justice because there cannot be justice and injustice among animals. Have you ever seen animals hold court? Have you ever seen, I mean, other than in a far side comic, have you ever seen uh, animals gather together and, and hold a trial for other animals? When a lion kills a zebra, do the animals of the Serengeti 
put together a posse and go out and arrest him, charge him with murder, put him on trial, hold court, present evidence for and against to, in order to determine guilt and innocence and put him before a, a jury of his peers? Do animals have any sense of justice at all? No, they don't. And yet, the fact that we as human beings have courts and we have laws and we enforce those laws and we try people for violating those laws and we understand issues of right and wrong and morality and immorality is implicit proof that we know that we are different than the animals. We know that we are different from the animals. There is nothing of this sort in the animal kingdom. And the fact that we do it is evidence that we do not believe that we are just merely animals. But if we are to evaluate the issues of justice just from the perspective of this world, we can't know anything about the coming judgment. Who knows, as Solomon says in verse 21, that the breath of one goes up and the breath of the other goes down. Who knows that there shall be a day of reckoning when God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Who would know these things if God did not reveal them? So verse 16 is an observation about this injustice. Verse 17 is the God-fearing person's perspective. Verse 18 is the under-the-sun person's perspective. They were all just a bunch of animals that there is really no difference. Now let's look at the conclusion, verse 22. We should be happy in our activities, verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? And this is one of those uh, better than passages. It's, it's better... It's better to do this than to do that. It's better that we should do this. We see this in Ecclesiastes. It's not the first one. It's not the last one. We've, we've looked at a couple of them already. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This I have seen is from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 3.12-13, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. These are the nothing better than passages. Solomon, evaluating life, comes to these conclusions that, look, we all ought to just eat and drink and enjoy these gifts that God has given to us. This is what Solomon comes back to time and again. Now, at first glance, it seems quite a, a bit odd to land here as a conclusion. Just be happy in your activities and enjoy the lot that God has given to you. You say, well, Solomon, what, how can you say this? You've been discussing issues of righteousness and wickedness and justice and injustice and eternal judgment and the righting of every wrong. You've been talking about men and animals and death and dying, and this is where you land? Rejoice in your activities? Be happy in your lot? I mean, what are we, Bobby McFerrin? Don't worry, be happy. That's our life motto now. And look at the end of verse 22, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? And Solomon is convinced that we would face this judgment, and ultimately, but ultimately he knew very little of what would come after death, and because his understanding of, of what would come in the future and the eternal state was very limited, especially compared to ours on this side of the cross with the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament and the revelation that we have with the rest of the Old Testament. Our understanding of, of those future and eternal issues is, is much more robust than Solomon's ever was. So he is recognizing there his limited knowledge and saying that uh, that he really didn't know a lot of what might come either in the afterlife or what would happen here on earth after we die. And so Solomon is just saying, with given that limited knowledge, be happy in your activities. That is your lot. Nothing is better than you should be content with this. Now, when you think about it, it makes sense in light of what he has said so far. At first blush, blush it seems kind of odd. The conclusion that he gives here, the advice that he gives, doesn't seem to fit. But then when you think about it, think about it in this way. Yes, there is injustice in the world, verse 16. But what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it? Does does any of your frustration, your vexation, your fixation upon these things, your angst and anxiety and worry, your anger over these things, does it really accomplish anything? Does it ultimately do anything to, to right that wrong? 
Can you change that? No, you can't. All right, then, just be happy in what you have. Be happy with your activities that God has appointed for you. Be happy with the lot that God has apportioned to you. Work and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Eat and drink and see good in it. It is the gift of God. So tell yourself that your labor is good and enjoy the fruits of it. This is the gift of a loving and gracious God to you. And even more so in light of your own mortality, verses 17 through 21, the fact that you are going to be judged. Let that govern how you eat and drink and enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. The fact that you are going to die just like a beast and your body will decay and you will perish and you will move on from this earth. Let that motivate you to simply live in light of today and to enjoy the good gifts that God has given to you. You don't know what the future may bring. You don't know what will happen in this world after you die. You don't know. You don't know what is to come. You don't, you know that there's a judgment to come, but there's so much more that we don't know about the future than we do know. And so God will judge the wicked. He will vindicate the righteous. He will settle the score. So you, what do you do? Rejoice. Be happy in your activities. Enjoy the lot that God has given to you. That's solid advice. One, one final observation before we leave. One thing that we should learn here is that we need to evaluate the things done in this world and the things that we see and experience from the perspective of faith and not by sight. If we just judged it by sight, we would just come to the conclusion that men and beasts are the same. And there really is no future. There really is no eternal justice. There is no judgment. There is no righting of wrongs. And yet, but the eyes of faith, we can say that we believe that there will come a time when God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. We know that he has appointed that day. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And those who love justice and those who love righteousness would say, Lord, hasten that day. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.